Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen we are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. I've always loved this definition of the church, which was spoken first by John Paul, Pope John Paul II. We are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. It seems such a fitting definition of, of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be bound to Christ and his church, an Easter people. And I think First uh, Peter, the letter, would agree. We might actually sum the whole letter up as a letter to God's Easter people. If you were listening carefully a couple weeks ago when we began our journey through the letter, the lectionary leads us through it sequentially during the season of Easter this year, You might have noticed something interesting. He began in chapter 3 by defining God this way and our relationship to him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's who Peter is talking to. Those who've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And he goes on then through the rest of this letter to chart the contours, to describe what it looks like to live as these born-again people. And I want to use this metaphor of Easter people to guide us through chapter 2 this morning. Now, I want to pause and give a little bit of a disclaimer because Peter is going going to be describing what it looks like to live in faith. And sometimes as Lutherans, when we hear that, we are, we are prone to think, okay, this is the law telling us what we can't do, and so we, why we need Jesus. That would be to flip Peter exactly on his head and misunderstand him entirely. To, give you, to flesh this out a little bit more fully, at the end of chapter 1, he says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that is, your belief in this gospel, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter is talking to those who have been born again through the power of the gospel, who have heard this story preached to them, that Jesus lives And because they believe this, that faith changes them. It changes their nature as much as being born changes your status in the world. You are now born anew. You're a different kind of person. And Luther actually says this is the proper way to preach. First, emphasize faith, what it does, what its power and nature are. And then, now that God has dealt this way with us and has given everything everything to us that is his, what then shall we do? That's the question Peter is answering, which means I actually need to pause and address those of you who are not believers in here. Some of you may be in here and may not actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe you don't think that's possible. Maybe you just don't care or see why that would be relevant to you. And if that's you, I want you to know I'm really glad you're here. You are welcome here. This is definitely a place for people like you who are listening and wondering. But I also want you to know that what I'm about to talk about is not a bit of good advice. This is not an ethic that will help you improve your life a little bit or be a little bit happier before you die. What I'm describing, what I'm about to describe, is what it looks like to believe that Jesus actually is the future. 
that his resurrection has opened up a possibility that none of us could ever make for ourselves with any of our actions, but that he has made something possible, that you will not be defined by your past, by your failings, by yourself, but by his obedience, his faithfulness, and his sacrifice. And when you believe that, things change in here and in the world, in the community around you. You become part of this Easter people, and you learn to sing this song, Alleluia. And if that vision is compelling to you, then come talk to me after the service, and we can talk about what it looks like to take those steps of faith. Because Easter people are weird. They are different. And to describe this difference, Peter is going to use three metaphors that, we're going to, that are going to guide us through this text today. And they each actually correspond to different components of our life as Easter people. The first metaphor is about our inner life. Like nursing babies, we long for the word. The second metaphor is about our corporate life as a community. Like living stones, we fit into the shape of the cornerstone that we are bound to, and thus we share in that cornerstone's mission and its rejection. And then our public life. We are like exiles, people who are surrounded by others who do not understand them or live like them. And thus, as Christians, we are called to live by the mercy of God in a merciless age. So let's start with the first one, verse 2. This is the easiest metaphor. We don't need to complicate it. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, this is a really nice and simple metaphor, and it flows directly from what he just said about being born again by the word of the gospel. Just like infants long for milk with a single-minded focus and intensity, so you should long for that word which gave you life. Now, when I, was, uh, my, I had young children, uh, an infant who was nursing, I won't tell you whether it's a boy or a girl so I don't mortify them because they're in the room today, but, but this child was so focused on feeding, that if you spoke while this child was feeding, he or she would turn and glare at you silently, (laughs) staring you down until you repented of your sin and grew silent and allowed him or her to eat in peace. Infants don't have to be told to long for milk, to yearn for it, but Peter is telling us, like infants, to long for it. Now, first, what is this milk? Well, it's the pure spiritual milk. That, and actually, the word behind spiritual is, is logic. That is word. So it's tied to this pure preaching of the gospel, this pure wordy milk. That is the good news that Jesus rose. That good news, that gospel, is what grows you. So let's make it real simple. The thing that gave you life is also the thing that sustains your life. If the gospel gave you this new life, the gospel's going to feed you and sustain you and grow you. That is the Lord's kindness that both gave you birth by his mercy and sustains you each and every day. So it is not that, oh, we have faith and then we move on to better things. No, we are sustained by faith in this word from the beginning and all the way through. But why then be told to long for it? You don't have to tell an infant to long for milk unless it's sick. Unless maybe its parents have been feeding it ice cream rather than milk. And then you have to teach it to like milk again. And so Peter, by telling us to long for this, is asking us to guard and look at our hearts and ask us how we cultivate the desire for that which gives us life. Now, what's important here, how do we cultivate this desire? And you might be wondering, okay, Pastor, I can know in my brain that the word is good for me. 
I can understand it, but it's hard. It's hard to belong for it. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's boring, sometimes it's wordy, sometimes it's filled with names. I don't understand. How do I long for something when there's a whole lot of more interesting things on my glowing rectangle that are specifically designed to be exactly what I want? How can I long for the word when it's, well, so foreign to me? Well, the first thing I want to say to this is I have some good news. In context, Peter is not simply talking about you reading your Bible at home alone. Because historically, that was not possible at this time. When Peter wrote, there was no such thing as the New Testament yet. The only scriptures that were were a collection of scrolls, the Old Testament, and those were expensive. So the only place that you could get those is by going to the community. So what Peter is admonishing you to do is to long for the fellowship of the word, for reading together with other Christians. Because that's the only way that anyone of Peter's readers could have done it. So this makes this really simple. To learn to long for the word, go join a Bible study. Like, go out of this service and go to one of the Bible studies that we offer here. Surround yourself with other people that are feeding. So, and it becomes easier to eat. And recognize that if you don't want this, this is, could be and is a spiritual thing. A thing where your heart might be trained to eat ice cream rather than milk. And so maybe you need to ask, what have I been pouring into myself that is making my heart not able to desire? And how do I surround myself with people who are feasting on the good stuff, the stuff that actually gives us life? And bring that to God in prayer and ask him to create in your heart that desire for what you know is best. And the more, the promise is this, the more you surround yourself with people who are telling the story of Jesus, the more you come to realize that that gospel that gave you life is the only thing that's going to sustain you in it. Especially when things get tough. Which brings us to our second metaphor. The second metaphor is living stones. And Peter, Peter uses this because he can kind of do two things with it. And we're going to break it down into a couple sections. First, in verse 4 and 5, the logic, though, is this. Easter people share in Jesus' identity, which means they share his vocation and the rejection it provokes. That's the meaning behind the metaphor. As you come to him, Jesus, and he is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, elect and precious. Chosen is, is one translation, but the word is elect. You yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is, as I said earlier, our corporate reality. He, he goes on to say a little bit more in verse 9 when he lands this. You... Because he is a chosen and precious cornerstone, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We might translate the word chosen race as an elect generation. That is, a community who are chosen because Jesus was chosen. Because he was the king, you participate in his royal priesthood. He was the great high priest, therefore you have that calling as well. He was holy, therefore you are a holy nation. He came to speak the word of God, therefore you speak the word of God. This is a corporate reality that we, because we are like stones, fit into the shape of Jesus, who is the cornerstone, we share in what he was called to do and the rejection it provokes. That's verse 6 through 8. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here, you are fit to Christ, not because you deserve it, not because you're awesome, but because you trust him, because you believe him. 
Belief in him is what fits you to this cornerstone, and that fitting is what gives you the honor before God. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Those who reject Jesus as the stone stumble over it. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. This is an image Peter heard from the lips of Jesus multiple times when he explained those who confronted him, that those who thought they were supposed to know, those who claimed to be wise, rejected the Messiah that God actually sent. So you need to recognize that when people reject us or put pressure on us or think that we are strange, that is not surprising and should not be surprising. You, as servants of the king, are not above your master, and he faced rejection, and so will we, precisely as we participate in that mission that he was given. So what does this mean for us today to live as Easter people? Well, it means we recognize that we all have a role to play in this God's plan. We are all part of this royal priesthood, which means none of us are simply passive observers. We all have distinct roles to play, and Paul talks about that in another context. But we all do have a role to play. For some of us, that will be speaking publicly like a pastor. For some of us, that will be leading and guiding our families in prayers and worship. For some of us, that will be teaching. For some of us, that will be serving. And this is not, what's important to recognize here is that this is not like the law that gives you a few more things you have to do to earn God's approval. This is what the gospel looks as action. Bring back in your mind to your confession days. Those of you who are just confirmed will remember this. We talked about the great exchange. Luther's way of defining what Jesus did. That is, he took everything that's wrong with you. Your sin, your guilt, your shame, your death, your future. He took that all from you and gave it to himself. And in that place of that, he gave you his obedience and faithfulness and righteousness and sacrifice. And Peter would say that is also true of his mission. He was sent into the world to proclaim the excellencies of his Father, and so are you. He was sent in order to be rejected, and so are you. Because Easter people share in the identity of Jesus, and that means we share in his mission and in the rejection it provoked, which means we get to our third metaphor, that we are exiles. Now, literally, an exile, or he says a sojourner, that is a resident alien, we might say, someone who lives in a country that's not their native origin. Uh, I lived in Guatemala in college for a couple months, and there were some definite cultural differences, even among people who were trying to be hospitable, one of which was they went to church every single night. I could not handle that. And if you can handle that, God bless you. But these people, faithful people, were in church for multiple hours every single night. Being in a culture that is not your own is difficult and challenging. And Peter wants you to know that as Easter people, you are in a culture that is different from you. You are in exile. Now, he already built this idea out of the story of Israel in verse 10 when he referenced the exile. This is kind of under the surface, but if you know your Old Testament, you can hear it. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He is alluding to a prophecy from Hosea when God was talking to the people who were taken into exile in Babylon and said, you have a new name. Your name is not my people. Once we participated in this, but now in Jesus and his resurrection, we are no longer those exiles. We are God's people. But that means we're surrounded by other people who aren't God's people. So in a way, we are now strangers in our own homeland, sojourners in our own families, 
in our own communities. And so he goes on, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep, well, we'll stop there. So what, part of the thing that's different about being an exile is that you take for granted certain things and the culture that you're in takes for granted certain things and they aren't the same. So what makes sense to you, what is common sense to you, is not common sense to them. The basic ways you might deal with something are not the basic ways they might deal with something. And what Paul, Peter is saying here is that those passions of the flesh, they are part of the world that's around you. But you live by the mercy of God. Elect exiles are strangers because they live by the logic of God's mercy and not by the logic of the flesh. We normally hear passions of the flesh and we think sexual sins or something like that. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about the desire to live as if death is your future. And so you have to fight for yourself now. So what are these fleshly desires? Well, the desire for revenge against those who wronged you. The desire for vindication against those who malign you. The desire for honor over those who have dishonored you. The desire for the affirmation of your community, for legitimation by powerful and rich people. These things make war on your soul because they are driving you to live as if Jesus was not your future. They drive you to live as if death is your future, and so the only thing you have is what you cling to for yourself. But Christians are called to live publicly by the mercy of God. That is, look at verse 12, and this this is pretty heavy stuff in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, the Gentiles, those who live by the passions of their flesh, they live with a future that is death, and they act accordingly to protect themselves and save their own lives. You live by the future of God's visitation in Jesus Christ. So you know you have a different future, and you are free to act differently But this difference is not so radical that it is unintelligible. Christians are supposed to act honorably among those, even those who malign them. As they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Because Christians have a different goal in the world. The Christian goal is the salvation of those who are determined to be their enemies. We can see this in Peter, or sorry, in Stephen, who, as he's being stoned, prays for mercy for those who are killing him. The flesh wants revenge against an enemy. Mercy wants the salvation of the enemy. The flesh wants the vindication before those who malign you. Mercy wants them to glorify God because he will vindicate you. Which means, how do we take this today? How do we live as exiles today? Well, it means that as the church, we actually need to be okay with being weird again with being weird and strangers to the culture that's around us. The ancient church was okay with this. They understood that they were weird. Early Christians were maligned by Jews as blasphemers. When Christianity made its way into Greek culture, Christians were called atheists because they denied all the panoply of gods that were worshipped and tolerated in the Roman world. They were ridiculed for worshipping a death row convict. They were maligned as baby eaters because they gathered for their ceremonies where they ate the flesh and drank the blood of the Son of God. Ancient Christians knew that they were immigrants, exiles, people estranged from those around them, but precisely called for them. But for the last 1,500 years or so, things have been different. Eventually, Christianity was lifted up to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, and it became the norm for Western culture. 
And this has a lot of strengths, a lot of weaknesses. It's a long and convoluted story, but it had this as its center. It made us no longer feel like we were exiles. It was no longer strange to be a Christian. It was strange not to be a Christian. Which means that Christians got used to being accepted by their communities. We got used to being at home. We got used to thinking that the culture was there to applaud us and prop us up. But we all know that's falling apart now. That age of Christendom is falling apart and Christians have to learn to be weird again. Have to learn to be strangers and exiles, but in the right way. But in the right way. Notice what Peter says. Look at it again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that even those who speak against you as though you were evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. This means that the way we live as Easter people cannot be us going off into our own little communes in the wilderness. It may not be living so differently that we are unintelligible to those who are around us. Our actions should embody that which is best in the world around us. So that people see our corporate life and think, they've got that right. I want that. I want to live in that community where I am defined by the mercy of God, where I am greeted and welcomed by the mercy of God and not by my own failings. Because being in exile doesn't mean you're unintelligible. It means that you know who you are and you are open open to encountering those who do not share your values so that they can see them. And that when they see them, they will give glory to their source, God. So early Christians knew as exiles, like Israel when they were in Babylon, their virtue is to be intelligible. It is to embody the best of those around them. And this is Peter's vision for God's Easter people. They are born of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was raised from the dead and crucified for their sin. And by that gospel, they live. Their inner life is shaped by a longing for it, a a desire that is there because they are constantly living under pressure, the pressure of a world that does not accept them or receive them, but knowing they are called for that world to embody the mercy of their Savior. And precisely because they're called for the mercy of that world, they are called to be distinct, distinct from it, yet distinct for it. In other words, this is what we all tried to sum up in our vision statement, that we are his for all. We belong to the risen Lord, and precisely because we belong to the risen Lord, we are for those who need the risen Lord. So let us pray. Let us pray that Jesus, by his Spirit, give us this new life, this longing, this diligence, this calling, and this mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for rising from the dead to open to us a new future. We thank you for giving us in your life and death the only thing that would save us. We thank you for, by your Spirit, giving us that future in our hearts now. And we ask that you grow it. Help us to know you. Help us to follow you. Help us to bear your cross that you have bid us to pick up. And know that by following you, we are not above you. We will meet the same rejection, and we are called to meet it with blessing rather than curse, with mercy rather than vengeance, with grace rather than hatred. Sustain us in this by your spirit. Sustain us in this by your word. And grant that our hearts may be conformed to your heart and our will to your will. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.